0: agriculture has a nutrient problem. There's no getting around the need to replace nutrients that are harvested with our crops, but the challenges lie in doing so efficiently and sustainably.
1: Malt fertilizer would be great if all of it was utilized by the plant and the crop system. It's a question of overapplication. We can replace an entire semi-truck of nitrogen with four gallons of our product. There's an amazing amount of potential in what you can do to get that existing ecosystem to work more effectively.
0: Adam Lytle is the CEO of Sound Agriculture, and I knew Sound Ag by their source product for nitrogen use efficiency, which is what Adam was just describing there, sort of caffeine for beneficial microbes. But there's more to the story. Sound Ag has also built a business unit that does on-demand plant breeding to block gene expression without editing the gene itself.
1: We can actually tune the plant genetics to interact in a specific way with biochemistry. And so you can think about um, our photosynthesis product works more effectively if we can tune the genetics without changing DNA, but use the expression to work even better.
0: Each of these two business units really could command their own episodes. Today, we'll dive into the science and business of what Soundag is doing on both fronts and what it means for the future of agriculture. Well, hello, fellow ag nerds. Thanks so much for joining me for another episode of the Future of Agriculture podcast. My name is Tim Hamrich, and if you're interested in where innovative ideas meet practical realities in food production, I think you found the right show. I want to give a quick shout out here before we get going to two people who recently decided to support this show and join our FOA community. Thanks for joining Rob Galbraith and former podcast guest Alan Fetters. If you're interested in supporting the show and being part of a really cool ag community with some perks, you can do so over at patreon.com forward slash agriculture. Today, I'm really excited to bring you an interview with a very interesting company in ag tech and a unique one in many ways. Adam Lytle is the CEO of Sound Agriculture, which is in the sound science sense of the word, not the sound audio sound sense of the word. Maybe just as a podcaster, I'm the only one who struggled with that. But they have some really interesting scientific approaches to, on one hand, activating beneficial microbes to provide more nutrition to crops. And on the other hand, to perform what they call on-demand plant breeding, which doesn't actually change the genetics of the crop Uh, But it's more like epigenetics. It blocks the expression of certain genes through soaking the seed in a specific protein. Super interesting stuff. Now, both of these, in my opinion, are exciting innovations in agriculture. Uh, But I wanted to know, you know, where do they intersect? In other words, why are we talking about one business here instead of two? And we're going to get into that as well as some of the challenges of bringing innovations like this to the ag market and much more on today's episode. As CEO, Adam leads the company's strategy and overall company execution. He joined Sound to help serve both producers and consumers with more sustainable, differentiated crops. And we're going to pick apart what exactly that means on today's episode. Prior to Sound, Adam was on the founding team and served as the Chief Revenue Officer of Granular, a company I'm sure you've probably heard of, the leading farm management software acquired by Corteva in 2017. I'm going to drop into the conversation here where Adam is giving kind of a high-level overview of how he sees sound agriculture.
1: What we do from a technical perspective is we look at cellular pathways and enzymatic pathways in the plant as well as the soil. And we think the intersection of those two things is going to be the future of how we look about growing food. Instead of having to leverage a lot of synthetic chemicals and products, which is what you see with bulk fertilizer. And instead of having to leverage more artificial means like GMOs in new food production, there's an amazing amount of potential in what you can do to get that existing ecosystem to work more effectively. So we study that in depth and we try to mimic some of those behaviors. And so what happens is in the soil, you've got microbiomes which signal to the root zone that they need certain nutrients from the plant And certain chemicals and then on the other side the plant signals that it wants more nutrients we can trigger that like caffeine for those microbes and stimulate that process to happen more efficiently same thing looking at how photosynthesis is done we're working on compounds that have very small volumes we apply less than an ounce per acre of our product can stimulate a plant to run hotter in terms of photosynthesis thus increasing yield and sucking more carbon out of the atmosphere that's the production side To your question, which primarily the grower cares about because they can make more money and then the whole ecosystem does because of better environmental impact, but the consumer increasingly cares about that. The on-demand breeding side is where it's more directly on the consumer because we've created things like a longer shelf life heirloom tomato that tastes awesome, like a tomato you can get in a farmer's market, especially if you're like I am in California and had the luxury of being close to that where tomatoes grow more often, but... You can't sell those type of tomatoes in the grocery store because they tend to uh, degrade really fast and they get a very brittle skin that cracks. So we've been able to, using gene tuning, which we can talk more about, increase the shelf life so that consumers around the country can get that same taste and and freshness. And we're also in partnerships with a lot of the ag companies and some of the consumer companies, one of potatoes in particular, to improve attributes of sustainability, nutritional content and taste. So that's what I mean when I think the world is coming together where the consumer cares more about all those aspects and the producer is going to care more about consumer traits versus just yield, yield, yield.
0: Okay. Yeah, that's the perfect like opening answer that gives us about a hundred different directions to go to kind of go follow up on. So so let's maybe start with the source product, which is the more kind of nutrient. Use efficiency product that I want. I definitely want to get into this gene tuning and this uh, on demand breeding thing. So, with the plants and nutrients, it, you mentioned like, you know, less chemical fertilizer, but what you're selling actually is a chemical. So, you you kind of sit in this limbo. We just had this conversation recently with Vesteron on the show because they have a peptide where it's not a biological, but it's not a chemical fertilizer in the way that we think of chemical fertilizer. So, you know, how do you articulate that in a way that? Kind of makes sense. I mean, caffeine is probably a good parallel that you you mentioned, but maybe talk more about that.
1: Yeah, great, great question. I, I think look, we as humans like shorthands, and I think we've shorthanded as a consumer society that chemicals are bad. And I think, by and large, a lot of chemicals are bad, but very, very small amount of chemicals can do very important things for the world. So that's kind of the distinction: is it's much more about volume and impact than it is about this binary classification of chemistry versus biology. And so I get it, but it's really like a misnomer versus what's bad about bulk fertilizer is you're applying 200 pounds on average of nitrogen on a cornfield to get 200 bushels of corn. And roughly 30% of that gets wasted, if not more. It volatilizes in the air as nitrous oxide, which is 300x more potent than carbon dioxide. As a greenhouse gas emission and what most consumers and even growers don't know necessarily and ag is three percent of all global greenhouse gas emissions come from this nitrous oxide emission and production of bulk fertilizer on that nitrogen side specifically and then when you when you have things like phosphorus going into the great lakes which i'm from michigan originally there's a lot of impact on your local waterways there's potential carcinogen so it's not just Climate change, it's also human health and water quality that impacts our local communities. So that all comes from, I'd say, much more the, the bulk and the volume. Bulk fertilizer would be great if all of it was utilized by the plant and the crop system. It's a question of overapplication. We can replace an entire semi-truck of nitrogen with four gallons of our product. And it's much more about that aspect of volume and impact as opposed to you know, chemistry, good or bad, or biology, good or bad.
0: Yeah. All right. Well, first, let me make sure I'm tracking, and then I will get to a question, I promise. So essentially, there are beneficial microbes that exist in the soil, either to solubilize, if that's a word, phosphorus, or to fix nitrogen. They exist in the soil. They're natural. You are stimulating them to do what they do, just produce more of it for the crop, because what we're growing in a monoculture is is not maybe what they're naturally evolved to do. The question I guess I have is, because these are microbes, and this, this gets to what you said earlier a little bit about where the biologicals get a lot of their snake oil reputation, is that there's probably a lot of other environmental factors that will influence how effective those microbes are at doing their thing. How do you kind of account for that?
1: Yeah, uh, great point. I can sign you up for our marketing, given you are spot on describing it. Uh, <laughs> so this happens with all agricultural input products where there's a lot of variability. If you think about pesticide or herbicide, you're only getting efficacy out of those products, sometimes 50 or 60% of the time. Yet because in aggregate they work and they give you a positive return, we apply them. With biologicals and our product as well, there are similar factors gonna impact it. So for us, pH is a factor, organic matter is a factor. uh, Something called CEC, which is cation exchange capacity in the soil is a factor. How much nitrogen you put on is a factor. Because if the crop already has enough nitrogen and phosphorus, and we also actually impact some trace minerals as well, and it's not stressed in that way, we're not going to do anything. And neither are the biologicals, neither are folks like Pivot or Indigo or Azotic or some of the other ones you you hear about. And so usually it's not that it's complete snake oil in any of these cases. Usually it's that, as you said, it's tough to know exactly where to place it. And I think where the space has gotten into trouble, it's said... Hey, buy this thing and put it on all your acres, and it's going to work for you. And this is the results. I think it's just more nuanced than that uh, because of the, the innumerable interactions. So, what we do is we have something called a performance optimizer, which you can access online. We try to make it easy. You put in your pH, organic matter, and, and CEC, and it'll spit out a recommendation saying, We believe you'll have strong results on this field, maybe moderate results here, and then low here. So, we literally say, Don't apply on your fields. And it ends up early days, and I was studying this, but 20% of the corn fields are, probably aren't going to have a great response. What we need to do is improve that and, and include nitrogen practices. But what I like to talk about is there's so much potential here. And ag hasn't really embraced data science and analytics and predictive analytics to say where exactly to place stuff and when. And as we and other companies work on that and merge inputs and data science, you're gonna increase the hit rate of these products from 50-60%, which is what some have seen to what we see, which is 70, 80%, to like 90% plus. And that's how you overcome that that reputation, which is more nuanced than snake oil not.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. You think we'll ever get to like a, a field nutrient bank map?
1: I do. I think I think
0: we've got components of that
1: now. And the best growers are doing things looking at variable rate application with a basis of, of what nutrient bank they already have or balances. And we worked on that at Granul and Corteva. I'm so fairly familiar with it. I think the other piece which you have to add in though is your microbial map beyond even your nutrient because we can see which microbes we affect and not. There are companies like Christianomics and Pattern, a lot of those who are, yeah who are looking at that. And I think that's going to have legs. But you have to have an incentive for the system and growers to, to spend money on that with what to do with it and i think where this is nice hand-in-glove approach of it's like in human health you've got therapeutics and diagnostics it's the same thing so we're big big fans of that we're studying that as well um, in order to refine where it goes because the worst thing is for me to sell a product to a grower where it doesn't work and then we've lost a customer they've lost faith in this i'd much rather say only apply to half your acres where it makes sense and keep you as a life.
0: Sure. So, yeah, let's talk about that, how that interaction with the customer may go. So, you know, essentially what you're offering there is a way that they can apply less fertilizer. And so they're going to go pull soil samples to figure out kind of what the profile of their soil looks like. Then they're going to go apply, you know, less fertilizer theoretically than they would if they didn't have this source product. And then they're going to apply it, you know, fully or application of the source product. Is that how it works?
1: Yes. But in... A lot of cases, you would not have to cut your nitrogen if you're already a relatively low level. So we talk about something called your NUE score, nutrient use efficiency score, as a ratio of pounds of nitrogen, to bushels of corn you're targeting. And if you are relatively high, like let's say you're above one ratio, a lot of the, the land grant universities will recommend 1.2 or 1.3, which in my opinion is a little dated. But we will say you should cut. And you'll cut 25 to 50 pounds, which is not... It's so not half of it, right? But it's a significant amount that often gets lost. And then what you tend to see is source will give you another three, four or five bushels of that environment and save you the cost of nitrogen, which by the way, just skyrocketed about three X in the last year and not many signs of going down. And so you get, a, you get a win on your ROI basis from cutting your cost as well as getting a moderate boost in, in yield in most cases. If you're already relatively low or efficient, We basically say, don't cut anymore, apply source because we're going to give the plant nutrients when it needs it. And you want to stay right on that borderline of of optimum. And then source will often raise your results more like seven and a half, eight, nine bushels, which is closer to our long-term historical average. So it's a consultative sale, right? For by and large, like that's the conversation we want to get in. But we also do one other thing, Tim, which is we underwrite the risk because this is fairly complex. And we say we have a performance guarantee where... If you don't see the typical results and that happens we will give your money back and pay for the product so it has to give you at least one x roi and i think with new products coming into space they should put their money where their mouth is and, and that's a pretty elegant way otherwise it's just going to take a long time to move the needle given the risk you're asking for us to take
0: and then who's your customer segment on the the on-demand breeding side Because that's one thing I find interesting here. It's kind of like sound is doing a good job at putting your name with this nutrient use efficiency product. And is it so easy to just kind of apply that brand equity to this on-demand breeding, which seems like a totally different, I don't want to say totally different business, but totally different approach.
1: No, and it's accurate to say actually totally different business. So to be totally honest and open, like it's a challenge sometimes to manage both sides of the business. And increasingly, we're looking at them as separate p ls or separate business units because the go-to-market is very different. There are a lot of technical synergies, going back to what I was mentioning before about how we look at using certain pathways to augment both microbes as well as plants. So we get a, a lot of benefits to lab equipment and expertise. And at the end of the day, it is biochemistry on both. But when you go to market, it starts to bifurcate. So... For on-demand breeding, it's very much a partnership-driven model where it's a business development team who is bird dogging deals with the big four and ag, two of whom are investors, Aaron's Magenta, as well as CPG companies, as well as nutraceuticals in some cases, and then also working on our own internal projects to think about downstream to consumer things like the tomato I mentioned. So to your point, very different, but go-to-market teams are just managed differently. You could say do they make sense to, to keep in the same company? And I've had this question from probably investors. And from a synergistic perspective, certainly technically, from a business market perspective, what we're excited about is in the future, we can actually tune the plant genetics to interact in, in a specific way with biochemistry. And so you can think about um, our photosynthesis product or other things in the pipeline, because we have a number of them every year, what we're testing, works more effectively. If we can tune the genetics without changing DNA, but use gene expression to work even better. And so then you get this razor razor blade, they call it kind of business model strategy, where a grower, a retailer, buying both gets to be even more effective. And that's a lot of reason why you see the large ag companies with both biological as well as chemistry businesses together, because you do see a lot of synergies. So why I joined the company was not to, you know, flip it. It was more to build an enduring a new kind of ad company that can stand on its own two feet and go public someday. Not to say that that is a guaranteed outcome by any means, but I do think it helps to have the breadth of the platform versus a wood trick pony.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. And let's get into maybe the product itself a little bit on that is what is the difference between tuning a gene and editing a gene?
1: Yeah. So great question, very fundamental. And i even add, add in what's the difference between typical plant breeding or even modern plant breeding? And so in the evolution of the space, we would typically crossbreed advantageous plants that you see different traits in, and then look in their offspring to determine which ones you want to continue on. And you would take multiple generations and have to wait for those plants to grow out in order to get the outcome you're looking for. And even then, sometimes you're not going to get it because of the complexity of how evolution will work naturally. Gene editing comes along and in a targeted way can snip out parts of the genome in what's called generally gene silencing using an engineered process where you actually have to usually go in with a genetically modified approach, take that snippet of gene out, and then go in and you remove what's called your cassette in that so that it can then go into your typical hybrid. That can take roughly a year on average if you know where to target. And the big problem with gene editing and why we haven't seen many products yet is it's it's relatively long and expensive to do that. And if you don't know exactly where to go on the genome, you got to try again because the phenotype or the outcome you're looking for wasn't maybe actually tied to that part of the genome, or maybe it's tied to that plus three other parts. And there's so much of a black box in plant genetics, especially as you go beyond the typical corn, soy and wheat that people have been working on more so that what we really need to do is figure out where to target on the genome more effectively. So you don't have to iterate for years and years and years where we come in is we can actually soak a seed in a solution of targeted oligonucleotides, essentially these targeted proteins that then get taken up into the cell as it germinates through a natural plant pathway that already exists. And then instead of cutting out the gene, it blocks the expression. So think of it as just like a tuning dial on a radio. Instead of turning the thing all the way off, you can tune the volume down to like 1% or all the way up to 99%. And that tuning allows you to get a wider variety of phenotypes and outcomes. But the biggest advantage is, yes, you don't have to do it without changing the actual genetics, but you can do that in literally a matter of weeks. When you soak the seed, it's taken up and replicated by the plant, and then you test it to see if you've had the effect. So even if we're wrong about where to target on the genome, which everyone kind of is, regardless of the peer company you're talking about, we can try 10 times and iterate and learn when the competing technology can only try once. So what I liken it to is kind of a Moore's law for plants. Where back in the 70s and 80s, as you were transitioning and continued to higher and higher microprocessing power, you could try more things and iterate, which has ultimately resulted in the information technology revolution. We think the same thing will happen in food. You'll get this golden age of, of genetic diversity and personalization of food and crops, which will ultimately lead to the most agile food and agriculture system possible, which we really need as the planet is changing.
0: Okay. This yeah, this is super interesting. So it's a seed treatment. And it's a protein that blocks the gene expression.
1: Yeah, it can, it can also enhance an expression, but we, we focus on that less. It's called DNA methylation. So you're methylating the genome, which is blocking that expression. That's the technical name for it. It's in the realm of what's called epigenetics. Epigenetics is, is probably the most edge frontier of, of genetics. And that happens in human health. It happens in plant health. It's everything downstream of uh, genetic code where a lot of things happen that were just discovered in the last 10 to 20 years.
0: Hmm. And that would explain why you said you're creating a new heirloom tomato, because those things sounded contradictory to me. How can you create something that's heirloom, but it's still the same seed, that heirloom seed, just with your treatment?
1: You got it. And yeah, that's right. So it's the same heirloom genetics, which the benefit is a lot of heirloom genetics are really great taste and more nutritious. But we've kind of bred that out of them because in the modern food system, we breed for low cost and consistency in the supply chain and aesthetics. So, so what do we want typically in the grocery store? What does retail want? They want like a beautiful, consistently round red tomato that can withstand a three-week supply chain and still then last on your shelf for another week or something like that as a consumer. But I don't know about the Beyond the, the Vine or or steak tomatoes that if you ever buy, but the larger ones. Often they, they taste kind of like water, like they just don't taste that great. Part of it is because of what they've been bred for and where the huge opportunity is, is can we take the best of both worlds and you need targeted tuning to do that. You could also do it with CRISPR, but again, like we don't know where to target. And so it's going to take a lot longer to learn in that way because it's about learning and iteration. Hmm.
0: That's really, I mean, I know nothing about this. It's really interesting. And so you can essentially create something that, that targets only one individual gene.
1: Correct. Or, or theories of genes, which is called multiplexing, which is, the, again, the same as CRISPR. It's as targeted, very similar techniques. You use bioinformatics and, and other existing literature to say, we know XYZ gene impact sugar content, bricks or impacts... Uh, skin toughness or impacts disease resistance. But instead of having to do the mechanics of CRISPR, our process is just more natural and elegant and faster.
0: Really cool. Wow. And so uh, as far as commercialization on that side, wh- where does that stand? So we
1: discovered it and started patenting on it in, I believe, 2017 to 18. And then we've iterated on it for a while to prove out the concept. Starting in 2020... We began monetizing it, but still early days through partnerships. So we'll go up to two companies and I'll I'll talk about one, which is public. So we have a partnership with GDM, Grupo de Mario, which is a large C brand, mainly focused on soybeans, but some others in uh, Brazil and Argentina and Latin, also the US, but more so there. And so we're working with them on off taste of soy protein so that you don't have to process it as much because if, if you're eating let's say an Impossible Burger or soy-based protein, you have to do a lot of masking agents because you get this, this off-taste that consumers don't want. You really want like tasteless protein <laughs> uh, that you can, you can use it in a lot of ways. So if we can mask that at the source in the, the soy seed and the soybean plant, it saves money and it's a cleaner label for the consumer. So we're, we have a proof of concept where they will pay us for proving that out technically and doing the work. And then we get into a commercial agreement where we would say there are milestone payments royalties off those sales, but then our partner is going to go full board, commercialize. We're going to be the technology and kind of like the Intel inside approach. And so we've done that now with 10 partnerships, and we sign up about one every couple of months because we can do it faster, cheaper than, than Ginerdine. And uh, we'll continue on that and hopefully get some really high margin revenue downstream working with a lot of different companies to commercialize since it's a platform. It's not a product. It is more of a technology.
0: Right. No, that's interesting, man. That stuff's really cool. I I had really no concept of that whatsoever. Um, We're relatively quiet on it. I
1: mean, part of it too is like, to your point, it's messy if you're trying to brand two things at once, it's earlier stage. Uh, Sometimes I talk about it as it's a series A company. I remember reading a series of a company within the broader sound of which sources, um, off to the races. Right. And like we have product market fit and we're building a sales team and that is more to, to the front and center. So we market to that, but yeah, on-demand breeding in a way is like bigger, more exciting and more revolutionary. It's just a earlier stage thing, which has to be proven out.
0: Right. But the flip side is that there's relatively few people you need to even know about this to build a very large business. I mean, It's pretty concentrated customer base. It's not like you're trying to appeal to farmers worldwide on that. So if all they know about Soundag is sourced, then, you know, super at this point.
1: And if we ever went downstream to the consumer, which is something we would consider. So do we want to sell this tomato to the consumer? That's a big thing. And and we wouldn't take that risk lightly. But for other things we're working on, that would change, Tim, because we we would then market and want to be known for that to the consumer. But that wouldn't be selling to growers. That would be, again, a different effort. And maybe we brand that in a different way. So that's part of what I like about the company. And again, the intersection of the two, there's lots of different directions to go. And you know, larger companies have six, seven, eight business units. Yes, it's, it's two, which is more complex than one, but they can work together in a lot of cool ways.
0: Huh. Well, and I guess somewhat on that note, you all have done a good job of attracting some strategics as investors. My understanding is Leaps by Bayer as well as uh, Syngenta, right? Is that right? That's right. And then we also
1: have a lot of others in food and ag. I, I was also attracted to the company because of the credibility of, um, I, well, I love Sand Hill Road and Silicon Valley investors for certain reasons. They don't really know agriculture by and large. So it helps to have S2G Ventures, which is very focused food and ag, Cabala Ventures, which is Wilbur Ellis's venture arm. So another strategic in that sense, Fall Line. Capital, which is food and ag, and then Cultivian, which is also focused on the space. So, really stellar investors who know the space.
0: Right. Well, you know, how does that manifest itself for you and, and your executive team, having those investors? You don't have to go into too many details, but I'm curious, like, what is the advantage to having strategic investors as far as how does that look in real life?
1: It's two things. So, one is really know what you're talking about. It can help from a strategic and advisory perspective on real problems as opposed to just go disrupt, no matter what. Disrupt, disrupt, just, right? Like barbarians at the gate. That, that is because a lot of companies have made impact and money that way, what a lot of the mantra is in Silicon Valley. However, in ag, it's not so easy. How many companies have we seen with billion dollar exits disrupting Corteva and bear, right? Like you kind of have to work more moderately with the system and you can move things. But anyway, it, it's a little, little more of a sober, pragmatic approach, which I think they bring to bear and have some patience in that way. Because it's not enterprise software, B2B, crypto type stuff. Two is there can be some, some nice strategic deals. So we do have a partnership with Syngenta where they have exclusively licensed source to reduce nitrogen use in China. China is the largest nitrogen user and they dump on more nitrogen than American farmers who, would, I would argue, don't need as much end, but like are more efficient. And so we had the inside track there. They had seen the data for several years. So, so they had some confidence Uh, And that's a a huge, like $100 million plus MPV deal for us. So, you know, they're just invested. We'll see there. But like, that is an advantage that can come with those strategics. It also has some baggage if they ever tie you up. Um, But we're very careful about saying we're not in the bag for anybody, right? Like, it actually helps to have multiple. Because if you sometimes just have one, then it's like everyone thinks, well, you're going to be acquired by that company. And in this case, I think the balance of it is very helpful and, and provides options. Because at the end of the day, each of them only own like a you know certain percentage and no one has uh, decision rights.
0: Sure. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Man, this has been great. Uh, w- one more quick question I want to squeeze in here. Actually, two more. Uh, the first one is, how are you recruiting in this environment? I mean, much has been made about the great resignation, but more of what I'm asking for you is, you know, right now, especially it seems like in ag, and although I don't know any other industry, so maybe not especially in ag, it just seems like the demand for talent is at an all-time high. How are you sort of thinking about that or how has that been for you?
1: Yeah, I, I don't think it's any different from other industries by and large. I, from where I sit in, in the Bay Area, it's, it's rough out there. And in a great way, labor has more power than maybe any time I've been alive. I mean, I'm, I'm 40, so I'm kind of sitting in the middle here age-wise. But I think it's great because it, it provides a lot of leverage for companies to do the right thing as opposed to take advantage, which in some cases they have. And it makes it tougher, but good, right? Like, don't we want companies to have to offer up why you should join the company versus just like the paycheck? Because then you have to align values, you have to align culture, you have to align mission. And for us, what our superpower is, we do this culture survey every six months, where we survey on the most important things for the company, and really pay attention to it and want to improve. 100% of our employees say that the mission and vision strongly resonate with them, and 97% say Sound is a great place to work that they would recommend to their friends. That's a very high PS score. That's very high alignment of mission and vision. And so you can't say that with all these other companies. And so look, there's a lot of disadvantages to being in a startup versus large companies, but one of the advantages is you should have folks who are more engaged. You should have folks who feel more ownership. You should have folks who the mission is like closer to them, and that's where they're joining. So, I, I think that's a large reason we can win a lot of our first choice candidates. But given the rate we're growing, which is over doubling every year recently, and in, in the next year or two, we got to remain vigilant on that. And, uh, yeah, hopefully, we'll continue to be, be able to scale.
0: Yeah. Well, anything else though, before I let you go that you were either hoping to mention that that I didn't get us to, or maybe something I glossed over that we should really go deeper on? Anything at all? One thing we didn't
1: hit on that's a common one is will there be consumer acceptance of things like on-demand breeding? And I think there's a wide range of opinions on it, depending where you are, US or Europe or other places, but like the whole like technology and food thing. And what's been fascinating in the data we've shown, which is beyond just the like straight up one person's opinion. Is there's this massive difference in how Gen X and boomers might view the question versus Gen Z millennial. And I think for people who haven't dug into that data, it's kind of surprising. When we ask folks about are you open to things like gene editing, which we don't do because we're not changing the DNA, but still like that, or on demand breeding, where you're kind of accelerating the breeding process, two thirds of consumers say they'd be open to food with on demand breeding. Little less so CRISPR, but there's a big divide again. And I think it might be because of the like whole association with Monsanto thing and folks who are younger than 35 might not even be on their radar. But you get this reticence of like folks who are older are like, man, I don't want to touch that because I've been there and we got burned. But I think if you change the, the vernacular in the debate and you say, look, it's not just about helping growers produce more efficiently, which is what Roundup was at the end of the day, it's about helping to save the planet from a climate change perspective, or it's about human health and nutrition of what you're doing to that crop, or it's about something that you as a consumer can see the benefit of, then the opinions totally change. And so I'm excited to push that conversation. I think companies like Pearwise and Benson Hill would probably agree with that, right? Like there's a lot of opportunities and I'm hoping we as a populace and as industry aren't afraid of it. We just embrace the ways to talk about it in a different way.
0: Yeah. And you all have an interesting challenge. I don't mean this critically, but in both senses, both on the nutrient efficiency side and on the the on-demand breeding side, you don't fall into the normal buckets. And so you have to tell that story without the listener automatically putting you somewhere you don't belong, you know, in gene editing and CRISPR or, you know, in the other biologicals. Exactly. And so for me, from a communication standpoint, that's an interesting dynamic of like, how do you tell that story without being branded in a way that doesn't fit? Um, Yeah. Yeah. Kind of
1: of pigeonholed. I,
0: I totally agree. Um, Luckily, I, I don't worry about different
1: buckets. Weird is sort of a compliment in my world.
0: Nothing wrong with weird. I agree. Thanks so much to Adam Lytle from Sound Agriculture for taking the time and being on today's show. Super interesting work they're doing over there at Sound Ag. You can learn more about them at just sound.ag. That's going to be it for today. Thanks so much for your time and your attention. I don't take it lightly. I'll be back next week with another story of ag innovation.